Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm Sheena and today we're talking to Claire Lydon, British lesbian fiction author. She tells us all about cover design, where to find pictures, how to find a designer, how to deal with a designer. She even talks about font types. Join me now on The Right Stuff with Claire Lydon, because when it comes to cover design, Claire Lydon has the right stuff. Nice to meet you uh, on audio. Yeah, really nice to meet you too. We've had like, we've had a lot of uh, exchange on various social media, I'd say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So this is how you actually talk. This is not just your radio voice. Yeah. No, it's how I actually talk. I'm, I don't. <laughs> do you think I was putting something on? Uh, no, I was just wondering because you have a very um, entertaining way of speaking. Oh, okay. I hope that's good entertaining. Yes, it's 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 your voice is very varied and that sort of thing. That's what I mean. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, every company I ever work for always have me do their uh, voice message, you know, the, the um, on-screen <laughs> message, because they always love my voice, so there you go. I was, I've clearly got a, a voice for radio. Brilliant. Okay, let's start with a brief intro, just talk about yourself a little bit, and then we can get into the questions. Right, so my name's Claire Lydon. I, I write lesbian romance fiction, and I place a lot of emphasis on humour in my books. So most of my books should make you laugh if they're doing their job properly. I've written four books so far, London Calling, This London Love, The Long Weekend, and my new one is All I Want for Christmas. And all of them have done pretty well around the world, so that's really cool. And my books, like I say, they deal with the lives and loves of modern lesbians in the real world. Because I think I came to it, I started to write because I... I kept reading lots of lesfic. I was quite a late uh, convert to lesfic, but when I started reading it, it was all based in America. And while I enjoyed those books, I decided that the UK lesbian needs to have their voice heard too. So that's why I started to write. And and I hope my characters yeah, live life in 3D. They, they laugh, they cry, they trip over, they, they get drunk, they say the wrong thing. And so, yeah, like I say, my, my books sort of have a lot of dialogue packed with and, the, and a lot of lesbians. Lesbians are the key theme. And it's a common complaint from my straight friends and family. They say, when are you going to write a book without lesbians, Claire? And oh, I say, why would you ever want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> I say it's not going to happen in the near future. So um, Good yeah. for you. So, so yeah, that's me. And I, I live in London. And uh, so most, well, three of the four books are based in London. One of them is based in Devon, which is down the south coast of England. So I don't have any plans to base them out of the UK thus far. In fact, they're probably going to be based in London. Because <laughs> I love London. That's very evident in your work. I actually love the fact that you describe London so magnificently. It really makes me want to visit London. Yeah. Have you been before or no? No, not at all. No. Yeah, yeah. You should definitely come. We'll go for a pint. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I love London. I've, I've travelled a lot around um, the world, and I, I, think, I still think it's my favourite city. Um, I've lived here nearly 20 years and I grew up only 30 miles east, so I was always here when I was growing up as well. So I've, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, I know. Oh, I think it's wonderful. All right, but Claire, one of the things you do particularly well and what I actually wanted to talk to you today about was covers. Your book mm. covers are quite beautiful. They're very, um, they sort of stand out in the lesbian genre particularly because, well, lesbian covers aren't always the best, shame. So... <laughs> I've no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, no, no, of course not. So I'm hoping that you can help some fellow authors here with some advice. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about what you do to get your covers designed. What's your approach? 
Okay, well, I, I'm very lucky in that I used to work in publishing. I was a journalist for many years, and so I've got a lot of friends who do things that can help my my career as a novelist now. One of my friends who I work with quite a long time is called Kevin, and he does all my covers. He's a graphic designer who I work with for quite a few years. Basically, what I do is I, I give him a rough outline of the story. I give him the story. He doesn't always read it. In fact, I don't think he's actually... He's not a great reader, so... And designers don't tend to be, in my experience. No, they really don't. No. (laughs) So I give him a rough draft, and he says, yeah, 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 I'll read that. And I don't think he ever does. Mm. Uh, So I give him a rough outline. I tell him the themes of the story, and then I I go on. So all covers, basically, are mainly made from stock photography, unless you commission an illustration or a graphic design yourself. Mm. And when you're starting out, you're probably not going to do that. So I go on a a stock photography uh, website and that you can do like light boxes on there. So I I do, I grab together loads of images that will give him a feel of of what I I want. And then he can look at those and choose one or, or come up with something along similar lines. And then he normally goes away for about a month or so and then comes back to me with three to five covers and we choose our favourite, and then we might alter things like colours, fonts, details. Yeah, and then we agree on the final cover, and then do the ones for uh, digital and for print, of course, which is a whole different uh, ball game. Okay, before we go on to that, let's just go back a couple of steps. What mm-hmm. stock photo websites would you recommend authors start looking at? One I use is iStock, I think. Um, okay. And I've also and I've also used Phot- Photolia. So I've used okay. both of them. Uh, they're both paid sites, so you know the the images aren't that expensive. I think it's like thirty pounds for like five images, and really for covers one and two and three, uh, there was only one image used. So so you can store up and use other photos for things like book trailers or any marketing materials you might want. But you can get free ones as well. I haven't come across anything of good enough quality on those, so I tend to just go to these two. And isn't there a problem with other authors also picking the same images? You would think it would be maybe more, but I, I haven't really come across it that much. No, because I think as well, I think if, you, if you're just going to take that photo or graphic design and then just put it on the cover and do nothing else to it, then maybe you run the risk of that. Okay. But for instance, um, for London Calling, I... I, I picked that London graphic. It was one of my in my light box, and then my designer took it and then reversed it so that it, it's um, top and bottom. And for the for the long weekend cover, the suitcases they were on a, a travel advert, so he just cut out the suitcases. So things like that. And on the this London love, I've got a picture of two women kissing, but they had a stud in their nose and a stud in their lip, and he did a lot of Photoshop trickery on it. So. Two things. The first thing is light boxes. Just explain quickly what those are. Uh, it's just like a, a, a folder, basically, on the stock photo library that you can, anything, anytime you see an image that you like, you click favourite and then it will say, do you want to save it to a light box? You can name each light box, whatever you want it, and it's just like putting it in a folder. And then my designer's got access to that light box so you can see what I've put in there. And you do that before you actually buy the photos? Yeah. Okay, so... You're not spending on five possible photos. You only spend once you say, okay, this is the one we're going to go with. Yeah, it's free to download a, a very low-res version of any photo, and it's got, like, it's all watermarked, so you can't use it. 
but you can download it and you can put it on your cover and you can see how it works. So you can you can do a lot with the actual with the free one before you then commit to buying. I think it's important. Uh, a really good tip that you gave just now was that you use elements of the photos. You don't just take them and as is and put it on. Mm. But yes. but that requires a good designer that knows his or her stuff. Yes. So it does. so how do you find one of these creatures if you haven't worked in journalism? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> Well, I guess the best way to find one is kind of word of mouth, I would say, and then you'll say, well, how do I do that if I don't know, you know, if I, this is my first book. You could ask around other lesbic authors. I mean, most authors are pretty nice people, and they're happy to share tricks of the trade. You know, when I started out, I had a lot of help from a lot of different authors, and they're all very generous with their time and their information. So, And I'm, I, I pay that forward as well. So if somebody came to me and said, hey, I like your covers, who's your designer? I'd give him, I'd give them his number, his, his details. So you could do that, or you could just look it up on Google. Or another thing that you could do is use a pre-made cover. Now, I haven't done that, but you can, and there's a lot of sites that offer them now, with indie publishing getting more and more popular. So, and the indie, uh, sorry, the pre-made covers start at about, about $50, US dollars. That's quite a sort of economical one to do. Versus a designer, which costs how much? Well, it depends on the on the level of experience, really. Mm. You can get you can get quite a decent. I've been approached by a couple of people offering their services, and you can. It seems to me you can get quite a decent one for maybe one hundred and fifty to hundred dollars and oh, okay. US dollars, and and they would then provide you with a cover for print and digital. And some of them might even do you stuff for marketing as well. I think that's like the basic package, maybe up to like $300. But, you know, your, your cover, your book cover is the biggest marketing tool you've got for your book. It's it's the packaging. It's what people remember. So it's not something to be skimped on, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so look at it as this is the thing that people are going to say yes or no to your book on. So don't. Don't, don't think you can do it yourself. <laughs> I never did because I'm useless with design things. So, and, but luckily, I, you know, I've got a friend who does know what to do. But, you know, it's not that if you, if you ask around and I think word of mouth recommendations, if you want to get a, a an individual who you want to work with one to one. And there are also design sort of packages out there. So you can go to things like 99designs.com. They they sponsor a lot of the indie publishing podcasts and they seem to do a good job. And I'm sure there are lots of other services like that. Thank you. That's really helpful. Loads of information. Can you yeah. tell me, how do you break down your story into a manageable format that you can say to him, okay, this is kind of what the story's about. Now make a cover. <laughs> It's normally done over a pint, so, you know, I'm not sure I can remember that much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for, I mean, it, dep- it depends on the, it depends on the book, I suppose. For, for Like for London Calling, I knew I wanted a silhouette of London on the cover. So I trawled the stop libraries and found the one that he eventually used. But he made it, made it his own, as they say, on the X Factor. You know, basically what I said to him was, I want a silhouette of London and I want it to scream London. And I want the title big enough to read in a little thumbnail as well because that's what you've got to remember as well mm. your cover on a print book is going to be bigger than it is on a small Amazon thumbnail which most people are looking at on their phone or tablet so they don't really it's, it doesn't come up very big 
yeah, so I guess I guess just the themes and and the feelings you want to convey. You know, like for this London love, it's interesting that you said that you liked all the covers, and I think the one that I know you said in the review you didn't like the cover for book three, or your wife did. Yeah, my wife, but my wife's a designer, right? So she's much fussier than I am. I liked all your covers. Okay, great. <laughs> but you see, a lot of people would have said to me, books one and two don't say lesbian romance. And one of the things, one of the things that everyone always says is you've got to make your covers genre specific. And genre spe- specific for lesbian romance is have some women on the cover and make it look, make it romancy. Hence, you see a lot of covers with two women on, on the cover or hearts or things like that. And so for book three, my intention was to make it more lesbian romance. And, and has, see, it, has it sold more? And see, and see if it did make any difference. And it sold um, more than book two. Book two's my, the one that sold the least. But you still London Calling and still my biggest selling novel. I think that may be to do with it being number one. But also... I don't think that cover's done any harm, and I, I still like I still like all my covers, and you know my designer did them exactly to my brief. You can take it, you, you have to weigh it up because, like you said, you like them because they they buck the trend mm, of, mm. of lesbian romance. But a lot of people would say they're not genre specific, and so uh, a lot of people would say that if you put them on a shelf, they should speak, they should tell what's in the in the book, and I and I agree that London Calling and Long Weekend don't. Because they don't, they don't scream lesbian and they don't scream romance. Yes, but surely that means that you can cross into more mainstream as well. There is that, yeah, there is that argument as well. And also, like I say, there is the argument that do, you, do the same rules apply to digital books is my other question. Because if mm. you're going to Amazon, you're generally going to end up in a category. And then if you're in a category, you know it's lesbian romance because you're in that category. Perceived Wisdom says that they they don't conform to uh, genre-specific stuff, but I don't think it's done them that much harm. I think your covers are more emotive than perhaps just two strange-looking women on a cover. <laughs> and I think... <laughs> they are always strange-looking, aren't they? <laughs> they? They are, and this is, the, this is the problem I have with a lot of lesbian fiction covers, is the women aren't necessarily screaming, hey, this is what the story's about, either. So now let's talk formatting. And what formats do you need to to get your covers designed in? So you need to do basically one for digital and one for print. So digital is, I can't remember the exact specifications, but if you go onto Kindle Direct Publishing, they, they'll tell you. And, and that will do you across all the digital platforms. So if you're going to publish on uh, iTunes, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords... All of those, it's the same cover, so that's that's groovy. And then you're probably going to want to do a print book as well. That's where the fun starts. <laughs> so then you have to think about what's going to go on your spine of your book and what's going to go on the back cover of your book. Yeah, so you have to think about the, the back cover blurb, how you're going to fit, what you're going to fit on there, what elements you want on it. So do you want a bio? Do you want a author picture? You have to put your barcode, ISBN number. Maybe you want to put your other books if you've got them. There's a lot to think about, and and also, of course, what font. Fonts are very important as well, front and back covers. Okay, so tell us about fonts. Well, fonts can fonts can kind of convey an emotion as well, because fiction books are about emotion. 
and, and you want to convey what your book says. And you do that via the image, make sure the image pops, but also the font and the colour and the and leaving enough space, not making it too busy as well. Um, some people put try and cram far too much onto a cover and it gets a bit overwhelming. But fonts are, for instance, on um, This London Love, I changed the font of the title to make it a bit more handwriting, so so it looks like it's handwritten. Mm. Um, so that's a bit makes it a bit more sort of personal, and I guess and I love the font on the long weekend because that's kind of retro old school typewriter. I just love that. I I've got I've got a penchant for like retro stuff and signage and and travel books. <laughs> it's mm. probably why the first they look like travel books. I've been told, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love. I love signage, so um, yeah, I'll have to try and get some signs on my next covers. But yeah, a font can really, really change how, how your cover's perceived. And also, uh, putting a lot of people say as well, if you want to make it very personal, so fonts are something that can make it really personal, don't have too many effects. And also put body itself, faces are very good for covers. They draw the eye to the cover. But you don't necessarily have to have a face, you can have a body part is always good as well, so like a hand or an eye or a, quite a lot of people put sort of bum cheeks on clad in clad in jeans not, not just <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different category indeed <laughs> if you don't come from a publishing industry how do you know what font you're looking at kind of have to trust your designer on that one i think because trawling through fonts is one of the most dull tasks ever which i'm sure your wife can attest to if she's a designer but it, it's kind of necessary. Like the, the font that we used on, I say we, but I, I really can't take the credit for All I Want for Christmas. That was completely my designer's thing. I just said I want it to be Christmas colours, kitsch and scream Christmas. And and that's what he came up with. And I love it. And the font is called Mountains of Christmas. So Oh, fab. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was meant to be. Absolutely. But if you don't know a lot about fonts, I'd say hire someone that does. Don't try and do... If, if it's not your forte, don't try and do everything because you won't do it as well as somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's the best advice you can give anybody. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk briefly about what people need to know about when working with a designer. Well, be nice to them because <laughs> <laughs> your, your book rests on their work. <laughs> Designers will give you a great book cover if, as long as you give them a good brief. They can only do what you want them to do. So I would say that my designer has done fantastically well with everything that I've briefed him on and sometimes he comes up with fantastic things that I haven't even told him as well so that's really good and that happens when you've got a good relationship with your designer Mm. and you know by now he's read all my books so he knows you know the kind of thing that's going to be in them and if I give him keywords he'll know what to do but it is all about developing a relationship and that can be difficult to do I would say online because obviously I know my friend but if you're, if you're going to be dealing with somebody, you probably may not even speak to them. It is a case of trial and error, I would say. It's like anything with writing books. Finding a good editor is difficult as well, and that is a case of trial and error. And so maybe you'll do one book and you don't like it, same for a cover, then maybe you'll try another one. But you might strike gold first time, and it might be brilliant. But working with a designer, just make sure you brief them really, really well. And don't be afraid to ask questions, and don't be afraid to say, hey, I'm not really... I'm not really down with that colour or I'm not really down with that font because they are, at the end of the day, working for you. So you have to be happy as well as them being happy. Do you think it's important that you try to forge a relationship with a designer that is close enough to you to meet in person? No, I don't 
Not necessarily, no. Uh, and I think the way the world works now, I, I think that's pretty, the chances of that happening are pretty slim. Yeah. Most people these days work online. For instance, my editor, I just got a new editor for All I Want for Christmas, and she lives in America. I don't even know where in America. Oh, really? <laughs> Somewhere. And, you know, I've never spoken to her. I've only spoken to her on email. But she did a great job, so it doesn't matter if that relationship works. But, you know, for something like a cover or maybe, you know, you could say, hey, can we have a half an hour Skype chat? And that would be probably be a cool thing to do. And if the designer doesn't doesn't want to do that, then, you know, maybe think about going to another one if that's important to you. Yeah. Um, if, if you're going to do it over email, just be sure that your brief's really clear and, and give some other examples, give um, images, because remember designers thinking images and they don't like reading words. Yes. I was actually just going to say that I was saying I was you because you were saying email and I was thinking oh that's not a good plan. You got to <laughs> tell them. <laughs> uh, no, I've worked with designers, so I know they don't read. Hey, they'll skim read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just be nice to them and stroke their ego. That's the other thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good one. How come you you chose a American editor? Purely because she was recommended to me. Oh. Um, my first three books were edited again by a friend of mine who I used to work with who's, who's an editor but she was moving house and doing lots of other things for book four so I was looking around for a new editor and I was chatting to a couple of other author friends and they both recommended this woman so I tried her out and she was very good that's so, so interesting uh, yeah. I would have thought you would have preferred someone from the UK given the language differences not really I mean ideally yes but when somebody's really highly recommended, that's more important than the, any language barriers there might be. And to be honest, she she also had quite a lot of experience in, in editing British authors. Okay. So she didn't think it was going to be a huge language barrier. And, and there wasn't. There was only a couple of things she didn't understand. Like I have, I have taken part in anthologies before and been edited by people who are like from Germany, I think. And, and the language barrier there was huge. Mm. Um, even though they spoke perfect English, but they just didn't understand a lot of the slang, whereas mm. she did. So, mm. Okay. Any other tips? Yeah, I, I think, well, I think the key thing as well is just to make sure, especially if you're indie published, you've got to make sure that you're cover stands up to traditionally published all books so mm. don't make sure it looks good uh, make sure it looks professional overall all the elements work and again i suppose the thing to be genre specific is good advice so i mean you can look at all the look at the books that are doing well in the genre that you want to publish in and then see what bits of those you like you don't have to copy them but see what bits of those that you that you might like and you can also do that when you're thinking of what do you want on your cover you can have a look and see what you might like. And that's a good tip as well. Um, if you if you want to work with a designer, but you don't, you're not quite sure what you want, go to the pre-made sites because all the pre-made covers are pretty good, I have to say. And you might be able to get some ideas there and then go to your designer and say, oh, hey, this is what I like. I like this bit of this one. I like this bit of this one. And then hopefully they'll be able to take it from there. That's actually really great advice. I, I was just thinking, I because I've only recently discovered these pre-made sites. Um, somebody was talking to me about them, and, and there are some really good ones there. So it's a good economical option if you wanted to just grab one off the shelf. Tell me, once they sell it to you, do they sell it again to somebody else? Uh, no, at least all the ones I've looked at. 
they always say that as soon as as soon as it's uh, bought, they take it down. Yeah, I think that's the only ethical way to do that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a bit rubbish. <laughs> it would. It would. <laughs> All right. So I signed up for your newsletter recently, and then I got some very sweet free stories. Uh-huh. You say mm-hmm, slightly skeptically. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're just waiting to see no, where I'm going with this. <laughs> so I suggest everybody goes and signs up. How can they do that? That would be a great thing for everyone to do, I would say. You can go to my website, which is www.clairelyden.co.uk, and there is a little box at the top of the uh, web- website that you can just put your address in, and then I will send you a lovely free story and also a bonus chapter from my book, All I Want for Christmas. And yes, I'm just in the process of writing uh, the f- a follow-up to that. Uh, yeah, so I'm not sure when that's going to come out. <laughs> but I'm just in the process of writing a, a sort of a, a novelette and maybe a novella follow-up. Will it also be a Christmas one, or is this going to be now after Christmas? No, it will be after Christmas. Like. So it will be all I want for... I'm not quite sure. Depends when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so it could be Valentine's Day or... It could be. Or... If I get written in time, or it might be... Easter. Easter? Okay, all I went for Easter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I highly recommend All I Went for Christmas. Brilliant book. Great. No, thank you very much. did a lovely review on your site, which is greatly appreciated. Yeah, and you can find me as well on um, Twitter, Facebook, and I've got a YouTube channel if you want to uh, watch me reading chapters from my books, and also the, the uh, Lesbian Fiction Podcast, which is hosted by My Lesbian Radio, and that's a monthly podcast where I interview all different authors and find out how they work, and uh, that's really cool. It's lovely meeting all the different authors from all around the world, and it's also great for me because I pick up tips, <laughs> so it's <laughs> yes. not just the listeners that are getting the tips, it's me too. Yeah, I've, I've listened to the podcast, it's great fun, go check it out. And are the links to all of these things on your website? Yes, all the latest podcasts are on there. And um, yeah, you can just click on all the social media buttons, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those. I'm all over the place. Yes, and I will also include some links in my show notes. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. No problem. Hope that was helpful. It was very helpful. And you covered a lot of the things I was hoping you were going to cover. So. Hooray. You're listening to The Right Stuff. I'm Sheena, and we just spoke to Claire Lydon. Coming up now, a reading. London Calling by Claire Lydon. Chapter 1. Sydney, September 2009. The sun's rays were sliding down the roof of the train, like molten lava as it rattled into view. Tonight, the city was scorched, melting. I stood on the platform and watched rolling my neck back in a semicircular motion, feeling my tired bones click and the stress of the day seep out of my body. That the sun was still out was great news, as it meant I could get home, change and make it to the pub for a drink before the last shards of daylight pierced the horizon and evening draped itself across the city. Enjoying a cold beer on a warm evening was still one of life's pleasures that filled me with fizzy, carbonated joy. I'd been looking forward to it all day, in between trying to sell advertising space to small businesses. 
During my quest to flog said space, I consumed three chocolate Tim Tams and three cups of strong coffee, none of which were doing my system any favours on the kickstart front. Mind you, the term kickstart seemed to me more suited to motorcycle competitions or the side of cereal boxes, not actually involved in real life. It's when you tried to shoehorn such phrases into your day that the problems began. The train lurched forward as its weary metallic hulk shuddered to a stop, but I was standing in exactly the right spot for the doors, as this was a journey I did every day. The doors hissed hello, and I got on, selecting the nearest seat from four available, and feeling the nylon sizzle under my thighs as I sat down. Today was Karen's 30th birthday, and we'd arranged to meet with friends at our favourite pub in Newtown before dancing and Thai food. Karen was coming to the pub straight from work, and I'd told her I was too, but I'd left early so that I could get home, change, and pick up her present. She wasn't expecting it, and I couldn't wait to see her face. I'd searched everywhere for the perfect gift, and I thought I'd found it. Some vintage earrings and a necklace I knew she'd love. Karen had style, and these would adorn her beautiful features perfectly. I looked at my watch. We'd arranged to meet at the pub at 5.30, so there should be plenty of time. As the train pulled out, I concentrated on not biting my fingernails, pressed both palms flat against my thighs and watched the hot Sydney afternoon slide by. Three stops later and I was off the train, springing down the platform, my grey shoulder bag banging against my hip as I went. Even though I hated commuter mornings, I was enthralled by the evenings, where everyone was far more relaxed and ready to kick back. Turns out I'm much better at kicking back than kick-starting. My flat, or apartment, as the Aussies would say, was in a building that housed 20 others, built in the 80s and starting to show signs of wear and tear. Today, though, the lift glided swiftly up to the second floor, spitting me out onto the stained beige carpet in seconds. From there, it was a short six steps to my thick white front door. The lounge light was on as I made my way down the magnolia hallway. I must have missed it this morning. I told myself off and went through to the kitchen, making a mental note to wipe down the door frame, which looked spudged. Something wasn't quite right, though. I could hear noises. My doctor flatmate Paula was working today, so she shouldn't be here. I turned my head, feeling my heartbeat quicken and goosebumps break out along my arms as I headed back out into the hallway and towards the bedrooms. The noises got louder as I advanced, and my stomach lurched, but they seemed to be coming from Paula's room, so maybe she changed her shifts. I stood outside the door and knocked lightly. Paula? The noises continued. There was a slap. It sounded nasty. Perhaps she was having sex. But Paula didn't have a girlfriend, and she wasn't the type of girl to bring someone home in the middle of the day. I took a deep breath, my forehead creased with concern, and pushed open the door. And that's when I came across Karen, kneeling over my supremely naked flatmate Paula, her hand raised to slap Paula's still red butt cheek, in Paula's bed, not mine, on Karen's 30th birthday. Karen, my girlfriend, not Paula's. Karen's face was flush pink, her shoulder-length blonde hair tussled. I knew that look, I'd seen it many times. Like this morning, for instance, when I'd given her what I thought was her only birthday sex. Clearly I was wrong. My brain tilted in my head as the full impact of this scene sunk in. This was not what I'd expected when I left work today. I wondered if I could get a refund on the earrings and necklace. Chapter 2. January 2010. London. 
There had been no ice on the plane, which had seriously disrupted my plan of getting coolly plastered by the time we flew over Uluru. Since living in Australia, I'd become allergic to warm alcohol, something I suspected was going to prove problematic back in the UK. When we landed, Heathrow was as I remembered it, angular and cold. Plus, it smelt like a flat I'd once rented in Crouch End, part musty cupboards, part beige. Beige has a smell, believe me. Even though I didn't step outside to get from the plane to the terminal, I could feel the winter air as soon as we landed. This was another aspect of my homeland I was going to have to get used to again. The weather, Sydney, had ruined me. I tugged my lightweight blue jacket closer around me, but knew in my heart it was useless. Now I was back in the UK, it didn't seem quite as thrilling as it had when I was thinking about it back in Sydney. Now suddenly, the Australian city seemed like the exotic destination, and London a place of defeat, where my family were, where I had no money, no job, no home. I had a quiet word with myself as I washed my hands with pink liquid soap and squinted in the mirror, scanning my grey eyes for signs that landing back in the UK was a positive move. They were giving nothing away. Once I'd passed the dead-eyed custom staff, I pushed my trolley through duty-free, out of the sliding doors and into the waiting throng beyond the long metal railings. As I swept along, I saw my parents standing near the end of the crowd in matching jumpers they'd bought from Debenhams. I remembered the phone call telling me this news. The jumpers were green and beige, with jarring angular patterns that gave you a headache if you stared at them too long, but were, according to my mother, super warm and washed up a treat. Yes, Mum yelped, seemingly more excited with every step I took towards her. Despite my reservations, I felt a huge surge of warmth flood through me. It was a feeling of knowing that, whatever else, I'd be safe here. My mum swallowed me up in a flurry of excitable hugging, and as I kissed her cheek, I smelt her familiar floral perfume. At five foot three, she was a couple of inches shorter than me, but we shared the same colouring, and she passed on her blotchy skin tones to me, something I never failed to thank her for. What's more, at 58, she was wearing well, her brown hair coloured with red to hide her grey, her smile untattered by age. My dad gave me a more manly hug, squeezing me just a little too tightly so that I staggered slightly when he released me from his grip. Dad still had his slight paunch, but also, amazingly for a man of nearing 60, he had a full head of hair with grey fighting his natural dark colours. I surmised the grey was winning. How was your flight? he asked, pushing past me to grab the handle of my trolley. We were on the move, my mum linking her arm through mine and grinning at me manically. Uh, it's fine. My my legs are just about recovering. Well, you look great, Mum said, somewhat surprisingly. I mean, your hair would look better if you let it grow, but I've been telling you that for the past ten years. Surely, Dad said. I'm just saying. Anyway, she knows we're thrilled to have her back, don't you? You know, Maureen's son went to Australia for a year and he never came back. He died, I said. No, silly, he met a girl and got married. Now she has a grandchild that she never sees so tragic. But she's on Facebook all the time and she showed me pictures. She's going to teach me. You're on Facebook, aren't you? I nodded. We can be friends. Can't wait, I lied. Oh, and I've got something else to tell you. Remember Phil, Mum said. Phil? Yes, you know, you're Phil. Phil was a guy I'd gone out with some 13 years previous, my last serious boyfriend before edging out of the closet for good. Um, I think the statute of limitations on him being my film might have run out years ago, I said. Yes, well, he called. Lovely phone voice, you know. And he wanted your number. 
and you gave it to him? No, she said. But I told him you were due back in the UK this week and that you should call back then. Great. You do remember I'm gay, don't you, Mum? My voice was sing-song. It didn't disguise my irritation. Of course I do. I just thought it might be nice for you to have a drink with him, that's all. No need to be so touchy. What a lovely thing to look forward to, a phone call from Phil. Even if I hadn't turned out to be a card-carrying lesbian, I'm sure I would have split from him, given the fact that while he was tall, solvent and not bad-looking, he was also crushingly dull. I felt an old surge of annoyance that even though my mum has known my preference for Martha rather than Arthur for over a decade, it didn't stop her stockpiling men for the rainy day when I realised my true heterosexual calling. We trundled on and out into the airport car park, the trolley rattling along the uneven concrete and my parents having an argument about which bay they'd left the car in. So I was home, but had I done the right thing being run out of town by a broken heart? As I settled into the back seat and the English countryside spread out on either side of me, I felt at once at home, but also like an imposter in my own country. You've been listening to The Right Stuff. I'm Sheena, and you can find all the show notes from today's episode on thelesbiantalkshow.com.